invite you to open your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. There we read the Apostles' command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. As you have your Bibles open there to Philippians chapter 4, you can tell that we are approaching the end of this letter. And you can see as you scan the chapter, Paul writes a series of commands toward the end of this letter to the Philippians. You see that he calls the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord twice here in chapter 4, verse 4 that we read. Then in verse 5, he commands the Philippians to let all see their reasonableness. Then to uh, be anxious about nothing. Verses 6 through 7, to pray about everything. Verse 8, to set their minds on the right things. And verse 9, to put into practice all that they learned and that they received from him. Now, each of these commands are well-known Bible verses, are they not? Probably verses that many of us have have memorized. And because we have them memorized, which is a wonderful thing, one of the tendencies might be to lift them out of their context and to use them as standalone verses. But I want us, as we consider each of these commands, I want us to remember this morning that these commands flow out of three chapters of wonderful gospel truths that Paul has explained throughout the letter. And that's what makes these commands so encouraging here at the end, chapter 4. It's that they flow out of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not begin his letter with seven commands, but he places these at the end after explaining to us the riches and the glories of the gospel. Some of the things that we've already noted in Philippians is chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to the the, the glories that we have in Christ, where Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The grace there is that God began the work in our hearts, and he will complete it. Consider also chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ that God has granted to us. And then chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure, that in saving us, God has also granted us his Holy Spirit, and he is working in us, sanctifying us, making us more and more like Christ. Those are the wonderful truths of the gospel. And so now these commands toward the end, they're built upon these gospel truths. This grace that we have received through Jesus Christ. And the first command that we read in this section is our verse this morning. The command is to rejoice. And he says it twice in chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice, just in case 
We didn't hear him the first time. He's emphasizing the need for us to rejoice as Christians. Now, we might read that and think, well, he's saying that as Christians, we should always be happy. We should always be really cheerful and, and happy at all times. Loved ones, I want to point out that that's not what Paul is speaking about here. Because the rejoicing in the Lord does not mean that we never are to experience sadness or grief. And Paul himself sometimes felt sorrow and grief and sadness. He, for example, felt sorrow over Epaphroditus' remember Epaphroditus was his fellow worker in the gospel. Epaphroditus' life threatening illness. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 27, Indeed, Epaphroditus was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul expressing there the sorrow that he felt over Epaphroditus' life-threatening illness. And Paul also wept over those who lived as enemies of the cross, as enemies of Christ, who rejected the gospel. He writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You see that Paul here is saddened over those who reject the gospel. And so if rejoicing doesn't mean always be happy, well then what does it mean? Tim Keller who is uh, the founding pastor of Redeemer PCA in Manhattan, he explains rejoicing this way. He says, rejoicing in the Bible is much deeper than simply being happy about something. Paul directed that we should rejoice in the Lord always. But this cannot mean always be happy or always feel happy. Why? Well, because no one can command someone to always have a particular emotion. Keller goes on and he explains, to rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you. To rejoice is to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. He says, rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks that it needs. And so, loved ones, considering what Keller has written and Paul's previous comments about joy, it's clear that the Apostle Paul is not speaking about a temporary, transitory happiness that comes and goes. Because we know that when we speak about happiness, it's often based on our circumstances when people speak about happiness. And so when we speak about rejoicing, it's something altogether different. We see that Paul often rejoices despite his circumstances, despite the situations that he's in. For example, he said that he rejoices when the gospel is proclaimed by those who desire to inflict harm on him. It's not a perfect situation, but he says, you know, despite the fact that they are doing these things out of 
out of bad intentions, I rejoice that the gospel is being proclaimed. In chapter 1, verse 18, he writes, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul said that he rejoices even though he is in prison, possibly facing the death penalty. He said in chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So we see, loved ones, that Paul rejoiced in difficult situations, but, you know, he also rejoiced when things were going well. When he remembered the Philippians in prayer, for example, when he remembered their faithfulness, and when he remembered the church and the people that he loved in that church, he writes in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, he says, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He was joyful when he remembered them in prayer. And he was also joyful when the church in Philippi demonstrated its unity in Christ. If you recall, he wrote in chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And Paul, he also rejoiced when their gift to him was received while he was still in prison. He writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So we see, loved ones, all of these verses, that whether things were difficult for Paul or whether things were going well, Paul was rejoicing. His rejoicing wasn't based on his circumstances. There was something much deeper going on. A wonderful example of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. If you'd like to turn there in your copy of Scripture and, and follow along. In these verses, Paul defends his apostolic ministry. And he has to defend it. He has to defend his, his reputation because there were false teachers in the church in Corinth who were saying that Paul wasn't a true apostle. They were saying, you know, Paul is uh, too weak. Paul doesn't have a good stage presence. Uh, Paul is sickly. He's been persecuted uh, way too much. He's not a dynamic preacher. They were trying to delegitimize his uh, apostolic ministry. And this was dangerous. This was dangerous because if the false teachers succeeded in delegitimizing Paul's ministry, they would also then delegitimize the gospel that he preached. And by doing that, then the whole church would go astray. And so Paul writes, and what he does is he turns their argument against them. He says, you know, the very fact that I've experienced so much hardship for the gospel, so many difficulties, and yet I persist in preaching the gospel and in planting churches, and I persist in my missionary endeavors, that's evidence that my ministry is legitimate. You know, the very fact, Paul says, that I wake up every morning 
and I seek to continue gospel ministry despite all my hardships and my difficulties and pains is a testimony to my true calling as an apostle. So what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, practice, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, and then he writes in verse 10, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. As we focus in on verse 10, where Paul says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, that word sorrow means to be sad. It means to be distressed. It means to grieve. It's actually the same word used to describe Jesus' distress in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew chapter 26, where we read that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he began to be sorrowful and to be troubled. Paul says, my ministry, my ministry is characterized by sorrow, by pain, by difficulty, by hardship, by one battle after another, and yet I am always rejoicing. Loved ones, how can we do this too? How can we have the same attitude. Well, Paul tells us by grounding ourselves the same way in the Lord, by finding our joy in the Lord, as Paul did. Like the psalmist in Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is a beautiful psalm, but it begins by describing terrible things, describing earthquakes and mountains crumbling into the sea and terror and upheaval. And we might include their uh, personal terrors of illness, of, of death, of, of losing our jobs, of losing our families, of losing our loved ones. But in Psalm 46, there is a calm center in the midst of all that, in the midst of the difficulties and trials of life. It begins, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And that's what Paul, loved ones, is emphasizing here, that we are to rejoice under every circumstance in the Lord. That's why he says here, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And Paul's command that we rejoice in the Lord is firmly rooted in the Old Testament. Habakkuk was a prophet, Judah, 
And Habakkuk wrote about rejoicing in the Lord even in the midst of terrible circumstances. He was, as I said, a prophet of Judah who recognized, who recognized that God was, was going to bring judgment on the people of Judah through the Babylonian invasion. Uh, the people of Judah had gone astray. They had been following after other gods. They had been forsaking their covenant with the Lord. And so God was now going to bring judgment upon them through the Babylonians. And think about, loved ones, think about the reality that Habakkuk and the righteous in Judah were facing. They knew, on the one hand, that, yes, Judah deserves judgment because they've forsaken God, but they also knew that the judgment that was coming in this Babylonian invasion, this this army, it would be horrific. There would be violence and, and famine, and their children would suffer. There would be disease and death. And Habakkuk writes in chapter 3, verse 17, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Habakkuk is between Nahum and Zephaniah, among the minor prophets. Habakkuk writes in chapter 3, verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What's, what's Habakkuk describing there in verse 17? He's describing utter disaster. He's describing a devastation that will be so complete that Judah will face utter starvation. But notice the turning point in verses 18 and 19. He says, he says Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. See, loved ones, Habakkuk's fears were very real. The situation was serious, and it was, it was terrifying. But what we see is that Habakkuk looked past them, past his circumstances, past the situation, to the covenant God. And he said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. One commentator says that it's a natural link, natural connection, that our happiness is based upon our our hopes to having juicy figs and ripe olives on trees, as Habakkuk describes. There won't be any of these things as having sweet grapes on vines, wheat and fields, sheep and folds, cattle and cattle and barns. Our happiness is is tied to these things often. That was in Habakkuk's day. What would it be in our day? You might include there a booming stock portfolio, a a strong retirement account, physical health, a nice house. But loved ones, a moment's thought, just thinking about these things for just a moment, you realize how fleeting these things are. You know, God gives us these blessings in our lives. He gives them and he takes them away according to his wisdom and good pleasure. And the Bible says that we can enjoy them while we have them, but they must not be the primary sources of our joy. Our joy must be in the Lord. It must be rooted in God himself. This is why Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 
he, he delimits. He limits the command to rejoice as he says we are to do so in the Lord. See, loved ones, because when we rejoice in the Lord, what we are doing is we are planting our feet firmly on the greatest truths that we know. We are planting our feet firmly on God himself. On the fact that we know that God is sovereign and that God loves us. That's what we are doing when we are rejoicing in the Lord. We are planting our feet firmly on the fact that we know that God is sovereign and that he loves us. Now, each of these things do not cause rejoicing all by themselves. If, for example, if God were only sovereign, but he didn't care about us, you know, there would be no reason for us to rejoice. Yes, he has all the power, but he doesn't think about us at all. He doesn't care for us. He doesn't look out for us. If that were the case, there would be no reason to rejoice. You know, the same holds true about his love. If God were only loving, he loved us immensely, but he was powerless to help, powerless to save. That also wouldn't be reason for us to rejoice. But what we read in Scripture, loved ones, is that in God we know that both of these are true, that he is sovereign and that he loves us. We know that he is the sovereign. He is king. We will sing hymn 310 at the end of the service, the hymn, Rejoice, the Lord is King. And as we'll see, that hymn is about Jesus' rule and reign as king. His rule and reign at this very moment, not just a future reign, but the fact that he is Lord of all, even now. The fact that he was enthroned in his ascension and that to him has been given all authority and power. He is sovereign. Paul explains this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. You may recall these verses. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Absolutely sovereign. But also absolutely loving toward his people. He loves us. Sovereignty can be terrifying unless you know that the king loves you. And we see God's love toward us in Christ. Because before he was exalted, as we just read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, we know that Jesus first willingly humbled himself. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, We are to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was born in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Apostle Paul emphasizing here the love of God toward us in Jesus Christ, that we were chosen in Christ, we were elect in him. In time, we were redeemed by him through the cross, just as we read here in Philippians chapter 2, and his humiliation. And that 
after his resurrection and ascension, he sent his Holy Spirit. So he is with us now by his Spirit, and he will return for us. This is the great hope that we have that is sure that he will return and he will renew the creation and we will be with him for eternity. And so, loved ones, when Paul says this phrase, rejoice in the Lord, he is talking about rejoicing in this firm, unshakable reality of who God is. He is sovereign, and he loves us. And our joy and our ability to rejoice always comes when we plant our feet on on that firm truth, on God himself, so that we will not be crippled by our circumstances. This is why Paul adds that little word in our verse this morning, always. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. How can we rejoice always, loved ones? Well, Paul says that here that this command to rejoice, to find our joy in the Lord, we see it is always in season. It's always, he says, the right time to rejoice. Now, Paul is pointing out that we can rejoice always because our joy is founded upon something that is always true, founded upon God himself who does not change. It's founded upon the thing that cannot spoil or fade. It's founded upon the one that that, that cannot change and does not change because he is perfect in every way. See, our, our joy, when it is founded upon God, it is founded upon eternal truths, the one who is sovereign and who loves us. Most clearly, this is demonstrated, as we said, in Christ's humiliation and exaltation. And so it's significant, loved ones, to note that Paul does not say, rejoice in the Lord uh, when things are going great. He does not say, uh, rejoice in the Lord when you're young and healthy and strong. Uh, Or rejoice in the Lord when you've got a great job and, and great relationships. No, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And he's speaking to a congregation of people at various life stages, some young, some old, some going through joblessness, some experiencing persecution. Paul himself at this time was writing this from from prison. And the focus on this word always, as he writes it in this verse, means that the Philippians can have joy in something that is always true and that does not depend on pleasant circumstances. And Paul himself is the obvious example, right? He's writing about joy while in prison, facing possible death. Loved ones, the way that we rejoice in the Lord always is by maintaining that that Christian worldview, that biblical worldview. God is sovereign in that he loves us. We might speak about it as keeping on our gospel glasses, filtering everything in this life through what we know about God, filtering our circumstances, filtering our our happiness and, and our sorrow, filtering it all through what we know about God. We need to reason this way every day, moment by moment, and we do this by using God's word. 
We use this by using God's word to reason from his character, that he is sovereign and that he is loving. Because we know that temptation often distorts our thinking. and Sin often robs us of our joy. Think about the example of Job. Job, after the trials in his life came over him, the trials in which he lost his family and his wealth, he lost his health, everything that, that he cherished. And then his wife said in Job chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Don't you see what you're going through? Do you see your suffering? Curse God and die. That's the temptation. Forsake everything you know about God. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job had on that worldview that he saw everything through a, a, a true, right, biblical perspective. This is why, loved ones, we need to be in the scriptures daily. See, they provide that solid foundation of our true understanding about God. Our culture teaches us bad theology. It is not the source for what is right and true. Our Bibles, they reorient our thinking. The creeds and the confessions that we have in the Reformed tradition, they reorient our thinking to what is true, what is right, what is eternal. They cause us to think about God himself and to plant our feet firmly in him. This is what Jesus was referring to in John chapter 15, the second reading that we had this morning. And we considered this morning when he said to his disciples, abide in me, abide in me, plant your feet firmly in what you know about me. Abide in me, and he said, and my words must abide in you. Dwell on truth, think about truth, so that when the difficulties of life come, you can continue to rejoice because you know what is eternally true about me. So be in the scriptures daily. We know from scripture also that consistent worship is also critical to be able to always rejoice. For example, in Psalm 73, we read about a man named Asaph who was frustrated that the wicked were prospering, but the righteous were suffering. He looked at the culture around him. He looked at those in Israel around him, and he saw that the good guys were doing great, and, or the good guys were not doing so great, and the bad guys were prospering. The righteous were suffering, and he looked around, and he was questioning, what's going on? It shouldn't be this way. He said in Psalm 73, verse 1 through 3, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph was not rejoicing. But the turning point for him comes in verse 17, where he writes, Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until, he says, I entered the temple. And what did he see when he entered the temple? He saw majesty and glory. He was reminded of God's sovereignty and of his power in that majestic space that God said should be built according to, to the specifics that he gave his people. 
He saw sovereignty and he also saw love. He saw the altar and the blood and the way that God had provided for his people's sins. And when he saw these things, Asaph was reoriented to reality. He was able to rejoice again because he had again planted his feet firmly in the Lord. So we are to be in the word, consistent worship. We're also to be among God's people. And that causes us to rejoice because Asaph, when he entered the sanctuary of God, he was with the people of God. He was with his brothers and his sisters. He was with others who were struggling but who continued to confess the name of the Lord and to worship the Lord. His mind was reoriented by the community of God. And lastly, we can say that in order for us to be able to rejoice always, we must pray for greater joy. Ask the Lord for greater joy to increase our joy. We know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, as we read in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are things that God loves to give us, especially when we pray for them. So asking the Lord as we gather for worship, as we are in the Word, as we are with others, with his, the brothers and sisters that he has given us, and asking him for joy, we can, brothers and sisters, fulfill this command to rejoice always. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word that teaches us the many blessings that we have received in Christ and the many, many reasons that we have to rejoice. Lord, we pray that you would guard our hearts against sadness and against sorrow, especially crippling sorrow and sadness. We pray, Lord, that you would plant our feet firmly upon you, upon what we know about you from the scriptures and our experience of your grace to us in the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us as a people and as individuals to rejoice in you always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.